Hi everyone, thank you for joining us. Welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Lockout Tagout, Arc Flash, and Hazard Communication, What Actions to Take Now in Your Programs, sponsored by Brady Safety Software and Services. My name is Tom Music. I'm an Associate Editor with Safety and Health Magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some housekeeping items. The views of today's speakers and organization are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. A mention of any commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the Council or the magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box that is located in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the Q&A session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. However, all unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speakers. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you will be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I can let you know more about that after the presentation. This, web, this webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. We have three speakers today. I'll go ahead and introduce all three of them now. Our first speaker is Scott Stone. Scott is the Safety Software and Services Solutions Owner for Brady Corporation. He has more than 15 years of experience as a safety professional building safety management systems and inspection and auditing processes. Our second speaker will be Josh Michaels. Josh is Brady's Safety and Software Group's Safety Solutions Owner for ArcFlash. Josh is a licensed electrical engineer and has more than 12 years of experience in electrical safety, engineering, and project management. Our third speaker will be Tom Smith. Tom is Brady's Product Marketing Manager, and he is responsible for the company's safety and facility identification products. He has more than 20 years of experience developing effective product solutions and tools for industrial, commercial, and construction markets. And now we're all set for the presentation. So Scott, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. All right, thanks, Tom. I'm going to spend the next 15 minutes or so discussing the creation of world-class lockout procedures. OSHA requires that energy control procedures must be formally documented and detail the specific steps necessary for shutting down, isolating, blocking, and securing equipment to control potential hazardous energy. <clears throat> In 2015, lockout tagout ranked number five on OSHA's top 10. Energy control procedures was the top section cited with over 600 citations, and number three dealt with periodic inspections with over 400 citations. Many companies struggle with documenting these procedures and then keeping up with them uh, you know, once they've been developed. Written procedures are critical for worker safety. Without procedures, workers run the risk of skipping critical steps during the lockout process, which can lead to serious accidents and injuries. Some common areas, uh, you know, here are a few common areas for improvement that many companies face when attempting to create lockout procedures. First one, misuse of generic procedures. Companies will sometimes use generic procedures thinking it's okay because the equipment is similar. However, subtle differences between equipment, such as the magnitude of the energy sources or the location of energy sources, often require that a specific procedure be developed. Adding a statement to a, you know, a PM or preventative maintenance ticket, you know, a work order that states equipment must be locked out, 
you know, while it's a great reminder, it does not provide enough information to meet uh, those requirements of the OSHA standard. Uh, the next one, the out-of-date procedures. When machines are moved to a different location or modified, their respective procedures need to be updated. However, many companies do not have an adequate periodic review process that would normally help them you know, keep up with some of those updates. The results or those procedures fall out of date. The next one, omitting energy sources, not identifying and including all of the energy sources, such as residual energy, you know, the, the, the stored energy and how to control it, can sometimes be overlooked. You know, a maintenance worker who does not dissipate residual stored energy during a lockout procedure risks very serious injury. Common cause for this is really not involving the subject matter expert when these procedures are being developed. Next one, overly complicated. Sometimes procedures become overly complicated. Although seemingly thorough, procedures that are too complicated are difficult to understand, um, and they're, they're usually not followed as frequently as the procedures that are, uh, that are easy, easier to understand. Um, you know, you need to give those employees an easy to understand, easy to uh, follow format, so they, they will follow it. Not readily available. Procedures should be readily available. This means in close proximity to the equipment to be locked out. When maintenance workers cannot find procedures, you know, they, they sometimes might proceed without them. It's very common for procedures to be in a binder back in the maintenance shop. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Where are your lockout procedures located? Well, I think I remember them being on a back shelf uh, in the maintenance shop. You go back there, it's a binder with dust um, on it. You, you can see that they have not been used or, or saved on a share drive somewhere, um, you know, on a, on a G drive, an S drive, wherever it might be, where they're not easily accessible. Lack of verification steps is the next one. Another, another step typically overlooked is that lack of verification. It need, it's important that procedures inform the worker how to verify that energy was in fact successfully isolated. This includes trying to start the equipment, reading gauges to make sure the gauge reads zero, bleeding uh, a certain energy, or verifying with a meter if you are an electrician. And the last one on there, not listing lockout devices. Procedures should specify what devices are used, you know, that are needed to isolate that energy and to keep it at a zero energy state. Sometimes procedures only describe how energy is isolated without specifying the actual device that is needed. For example, um, if you have to operate a ball valve uh, to control some type of injury, you should indicate that a ball valve device is required if it's not lockable with a lock. So now that we've talked about some common improvement areas, let's, let's uh, shift our focus here a little bit and talk about where to start. Um, the first thing you need to do is start with an accurate inventory. You need to conduct a full review to determine what pieces of equipment need an equipment-specific procedure. Some companies will have a good handle on what equipment they have on site, you know, maybe through a maintenance management system. Others might not be that lucky and they have to start from scratch. Uh, OSHA requires that procedures be developed, documented, and utilize for the control of potentially hazardous energy when employees are engaged in the servicing and or maintenance of the equipment. Uh, there is an exception to this requirement that's included in the standard 1910.147C4, and uh, the, the exception includes eight criteria that the piece of equipment must meet. I'm not going to go through all eight, just know that it is in C4. Um, you know, if it meets all those eight, it says you do not need an equipment-specific procedure. The best practice that I followed is uh, to develop procedures for the majority of the equipment, you know, that, that uh, has single energy source and above beyond the cord and plug equipment. Cord and plug equipment is exempt from the standard. Anything other than that, you know, the best practice is to develop a, a procedure for it. A second step, get the right people involved. 
the subject matter experts are key you know, when you're developing these procedures. Those are the, the employees that are very familiar with the equipment and all energy sources involved. I've written numerous procedures in the past, and, and my role has always mainly been administrative. You know, I take what the experts tell me, and I document it. You know, I'm the one actually filling it out on the computer. Do not try to, uh, to tackle it yourself. It takes, a, it takes a team. If you have someone saying that, hey, safety is responsibility, and uh, they need to, to be the sole you know, person that goes out there and develops these procedures, you got to push back a, a little bit because it is a team effort to get, this, uh, to get these things going. Next, address real-world tasks. Procedures need to be aligned with the tasks that employees are required to perform. If you have one procedure for a piece of equipment that has many components, you know, it might have 30 isolation points, and, you know, and it's not feasible to, to lock out and isolate the entire piece of equipment, uh, you know, because of manufacturing reasons or, or whatever, you know, you, you just have to work on one component, and you, you're able to lock out that one specific component to do the work safely. Um, your procedures need to address that. You, you just can't say, here's one procedure for the entire equipment. You need to tell that employee what's the procedure to isolate that piece, uh, that portion of the equipment that they need to work on. So they, they have to address those real-world real world tasks. And then the last one on here is verify for accuracy. Don't trust anything. You know, this is one of the most important steps. You know, errors happen, human error, when you're out there developing these things. You miss, uh, you know, uh, isolation points. You know, it, it, you miss some stored energy, whatever it might be. Um, but it, you always have to verify. It might not be at the time you, you write it right then because you can't bring that piece of equipment down. But the next time that equipment comes down for maintenance or whatever, every time it, it's a continuous verification by the authorized workforce to make sure that these procedures are accurate. There's no one better than the ones using it. And some of the, the authorized employee, employees, they've been around, they're seasoned, they've been around a long time, and they might not have to refer to that, that procedure, but it's always best practice because they're the best ones to identify if there's an error, and then that new employee coming on that's not that familiar, they're following it word for word, and uh, if there's an error on there, that can, uh, that can lead to, definitely lead to some, some issues. All right, next, generate short-term wins. You know, this is a big one as you're, as you're going through the, the lockout procedures and, and starting your development. Um, you know, on here, I got, I got three different categories on here. The first one, you know, do you want to start with the most complex, you know, piece of equipment? Normally, the answer is no. Um, if there is a very high level of risk and there's a lot of employee exposure hours to that, yes, you know, th th that can definitely, you know, be a place to start. Um, but, but normally it's very difficult to start with the most complex high risk. You know, you're really not, uh, you know, if it's your first one, you're still, you're still kind of learning the, the, the process. The next one you kind of try to steer away from is the all equipment everywhere. Just say, we're going to go and do everything all now right at once you know, here's a team, go out and do it. You know, you got to be careful not to bite off too much. You want to generate some some wins, you know, so that lockout team is saying, hey, we are making a difference. If you try to boil the ocean, try to do everything all at once, it can be very, very difficult. So think ahead, what does success look like in three months, six months, nine months, a year, you know, and setting goals and strategies to make sure that you hit those. And then down there, the phase one suggestion that, that I recommend um, in green there is start with equipment in a small area, um, you know, or uh, similar equipment in one facility. So get good at a certain piece of equipment, a certain type of equipment, and then move on. But generating short-term wins is, uh, you know, is going to help uh, ensure your success as you move forward. I include all uh, the elements. Visual lockout procedures, which include photos of the energy isolation points, they've really become recognized as a best practice as they provide, you know, very clear, visually intuitive instructions for employees to follow. 
when employees can easily understand your lockout procedures, they're a lot more likely to utilize those procedures for safe machine lockout. And then here on this slide, just list some of the common things that, uh, that you see on lockout procedures. The top there, general information, which includes the machine ID, equipment ID, facility, location, things like that. And also a very um, critical component is when it was created and when it was reviewed. We're going to talk about periodic inspections here in a minute. Uh, special hazard notes and lockout points. How many locks is needed right there? Just at a, a quick glance, you know, I am a maintenance employer, an operator. I need five locks to, um, to work on this piece of machinery. And then you see a note section on there. I know it's rather small, but special hazard notes. Is there capacitors? You got to wait 15 minutes. Any other, you know, PPE requirements, special PPE requirements, things like that, where you could put some notes that you want to draw their attention to. Um, then the lockout application steps. That's kind of the general OSA verbiage. You know, a reminder from, you know, step one from notifying the effective employees down to, you know, the verification. Just a reminder for those employees, making sure they're addressing all of the, the steps required for lockout tagout. Then in the middle section, the, the pictures of all the um, energy isolation points of the actual piece of equipment to make it very clear, here's where that isolation point is located. On the table um, down there, all your different energy sources, you know, from electrical, pneumatic, your water on here. There's the energy source with the magnitude associated with it. it includes the location in the second column. Where is it located? You know, the disconnect is located here and it corresponds to the picture, the method of isolation, you know, you turn the disconnect to the opposition or the ball valve, you turn to the opposition, but what is that method to isolate that, uh, that point and devices needed, you know, very critical. What device is needed for that specific isolation point? If it's just a lock and a hasp, great. You put a lock and a hasp on there, but if it's a ball valve and it's not a lockable type uh, ball valve, then, you know, it's a ball valve device, lock and a hasp, whatever those requirements are very specific right there. So you're telling that authorizing employee what they need to keep that at an isolated and zero energy state. And then the last column there is verification, uh, making sure that here's how you verify that that piece of equipment or that energy source on that piece of equipment is truly at a zero energy state. And then all the way on the bottom is just your removal process. How do you reverse lockout tagout? These are things that they're trained on, but again, it's just a reminder for them when they're working on the piece of equipment. And then on the back side of the procedures, Always include, you know, OSHA wants to see the purpose, scope, and enforcement that your company has for lockout procedures. So some statements that, uh, that are in regards to that. Then a, a further description of those application steps. Um, so it further defines what they need to do specifically um, when they're following the, uh, the lockout application steps. Then again, more descriptions on the actual removal. And the way and the reason that some of these aren't embedded you know, in the, that front side of the procedure because it overly, you know, complicates it. We want to put all the, 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 the most important information that those authorized employees need to know right in front of their face. All this other stuff, which is very important, the actual, you know, specific, you know, uh, steps, application of lockout, tagout, and removal, but it's as a reference on the back. But the, the energy isolation steps, which are most critical, we put on the front by themselves to make sure they are uh, right there first and uh, easy to see. All right, then you're gonna identify proper devices. So you need to determine, you know, you need to conduct a full review to determine what types of uh, devices are required to uh, lock out this equipment. Uh, this is definitely can be done in conjunction and should be done in conjunction with your, your lockout procedures. Uh, but this requires you to go out with that subject matter expert and determine how the equipment is isolated, not just buying a bag of devices and hoping it includes everything. Been to a lot of sites, 
Do you have devices available? Yes. You know, where are they located? Well, they're back in maintenance somewhere. You go back in maintenance somewhere, you see a couple breaker devices, maybe a small ball valve device, and a couple other things scattered around. You go out in the, in the, in the facility and you look at the equipment. Well, how do you lock this out? Well, not a good answer, right? Uh, they, they, don't, they don't have them. Uh, they don't have an inventory. You know, over the years they've been lost, whatever the reason. But providing locks, tags, and devices is, you know, is important for very obvious reasons. You know, without them, equipment cannot be safely kept at a zero energy state. Um, however, not any lock, tag, or device will do. It's important to have the proper um, lock, tag, or device. If it doesn't uh, fit that specific control point, it might be easily bypassed. Um, so they have to be identified and they should be included on the energy control procedure that we talked about. Um, and, and it needs to be very clear up front. This makes it more convenient for the authorized employee you know, and prevents wasted time trying to track down devices for, for each step when it's right out there in front so, so they see it, so they can prepare for that job. Additionally, you know, with all the different types of locks and tags out there, you need an inventory. Um, you know, here's my starting point. Here's what's required, you know, so the company understands this is what we need, you know, to ensure uh, the safety of our employees and they have the adequate devices. And then also you're going to be able to flag when something's missing, um, when you're doing an, an inventory check on these, when, hey, we don't have the right ball valve device, something happened. I mean, things disappear, things get lost, but it's some type of a flag in the system that says, hey, we need to replenish that inventory to ensure we have those right devices on hand. Um, and then also you have to make them very uh, convenient, you know, near to the point of use, you know. So if it's an operator out there that, that you know, where their piece of equipment is, here's the devices, locks and tags that you need. Maintenance, um, you know, it might be on a cart um, or if it's a very specialized device on a piece of equipment that they work at, place it at the point of use for those folks to make it easy, to make it convenient uh, for them. Very, very important. A little bit more on labeling the isolation points. You know, it's a best practice to label energy sources with the, the tags and labels that we saw on that procedure. You know, this links the machine-specific procedure with those energy isolation points. You know, uh, while the, the energy isolation steps are usually documented in each procedure, the energy control tag, you know, that physically identifies each point of the energy control on a piece of equipment, making the shutdown process more efficient and definitely reduces there. Here's the electrical, you know, uh, disconnect, you know, the first energy source on my procedure. Here it's actually located on that specific disconnect with, you know, an E1 or, or whatever it might be. All right, now a little bit about, uh, you know, sustainability and, and periodic inspections. OSHA requires that your energy control procedures are reviewed at least annually for accuracy and to ensure your authorized workforce understands the uh, inadequately follows the procedures. One common misunderstanding is that the periodic inspection is solely looking at the procedure itself. It's one thing for the procedure to be accurate. It's another to ensure your employees actually understand them and are applying them correctly. So a periodic inspection is just not, just not about looking at the procedure itself. It's actually looking at your authorized workforce to make sure that they understand and are applying it correctly. Um, the chart on this slide illustrates what happens when you implement a lockout program with no change management systems in place. Uh, that uh, represents the red line. Uh, and, and a program that was focused on sustainable change with change management elements in place. That's the, the green line on this chart. The blue line represents the OSHA minimum compliance level. The y-axis represents compliance and the x-axis represents time. All right, so let, let's look at the red line real quick. Um, red line, you know, it's a program that was implemented with no change management elements in place. So a lot of time and effort is put forth you know, to get your, your lockout program and your procedures up to a level of compliance. There's a big push on it. 
you know, rah, 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 we got a team, we're getting this done. Great, we get up to that level of compliance. Then the focus shifts to the next issue. What happens? Well, out of sight, out of mind, you know, we, we've moved on to machine guarding, ergonomics, whatever it is. And then what happens a year or two later? You have to start over, you know, because you, you know, and spend a lot of time and money to get back up to the level of compliance. And it's in that, that cycle um, continues. You know, it's kind of the roller coaster effect. Big, big push, get to compliance. Oh, no sustainable system. You know, we, we fall back out of compliance. And it's a continual roller coaster effect. Um, you know, this is not sustainable and uh, definitely not focused on continued improvement. Now let's look at the green line. Um, this is a program with a focus on sustainable change, focus on continuous improvement and putting systems and measurements in place to ensure you don't fall backwards, but always moving forward. This enables you to, you know, move beyond compliance because you can, you can keep building on what you have, not wasting time on rework. Some examples include, you know, a system to track when your inspections, your periodic inspections of your procedures are due on your procedures and a system to track that. Uh, a management of change process that requires review when your equipment, you know, is changed, is moved, something is added to it. You know, uh, safety needs to be part of that. Lockout, tagout needs to be part of that review. Management participation, you know, are your managers out in the field interacting with employees? Do they know what's really happening out on the floor? Employee participation, you know, employees looking after one another. Um, you know, uh, do they have a, a do you have a system for identifying hazards so they can submit that and they can submit their improvement opportunities, you know, specifically to lockout tagout, you know, when they're out there working with the equipment, do they have a, a, a communication channel to raise their concerns and, and they are addressed training that's tailored to the employee type, whether it be authorized, affected or other and uh, specific down down to the job and task level. Yeah, the main thing here is you, you have to have those measurements identified. You have to have a robust tracking system in place for sustainability for each one of those elements. You have to set goals and expectations, and it has to be tied back to employee performance. Metrics that are, that are very visible and embedded in the company's key performance indicators and tied to, you know, again, the performance reviews. Need buy-in at all levels uh, with accountability in place. Okay, that's, uh, that's it for my part. I'll go ahead and hand it over to Josh for the art class discussion. Awesome, Scott. Thank you very much for that great information. Uh, as, as Scott mentioned, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about the other side of the electrical safety issue with regard to Arc Flash. In talking about complying with uh, the updates for Arc Flash, it's really not just about the updates. Arc Flash has been around for a long time, you know, going back to uh, the mid 70s for 70E. In the current form uh, for 70E, standard for electrical safety in the workplace. That really started in 2004 and has been updated on a, a three-year code cycle. When you look at the most recent code cycle, the 2015 cycle, it flat out says our class shall be performed and it shall determine the appropriate safety-related work practices as well as the ARC flash boundary and the PPE that's required to be used you know, when working on ARC flash and working on live equipment. One thing to, to realize, though, is that NFPA 78 is not law. A lot of people question, you know, is our flash really required? But what you have to realize is that 70E is a recognized industry practice. OSHA and the National Electric Code are law. OSHA and the National Electric Code both talk about flash labels. They talk about the training that's required. They talk about PPE that has to be worn. Both of those documents require that these things are done. They don't get into specifics. They rely on NFPA 70E, which is the consensus standard to dictate those specifics and tell people how to go about complying with our flash. 
looking at 2015, there were some changes that took place. You know, if you're one of those people that hasn't really addressed ArtFlash yet, uh, you can just jump in now and start addressing these things and just follow the standards that they're there. However, if you've done some ArtFlash work in the past, you might find yourself asking, you know, what changes were made in 2015? Are there things that I need to do now to make sure that I'm still compliant uh, with the codes and, and the current regulations? One of the first major changes that I always point out is uh, a pretty simple change in the verbiage. In the past, uh, the work to be done to do the ArcFlash analysis was called a hazard analysis. Now in 2015, they actually changed that verbiage to call it a risk assessment. What's key to note there is, is just a simple change from hazard to risk. Hazard is just a source of possible injury or damage to health. A risk, on the other hand, is the combination or the likelihood of occurrence that injury is going to take place and the severity of that injury that will take place. So that simple change shows that the authors of the codes are, are looking at these electrical arc flash risks and not just as hazards, but they are truly risks and they need to have more attention paid to them. The next major change to point out in 2015 are PPE category tables. In the past, uh, there was what was called the HRC, Hazard Risk Category Classifications. These were classified from zero to four and there were categories that the risks were falling. The old tables included a lot of tasks that were not necessarily hazards. Some of these tasks caused confusion, and so the authors got rid of all those tasks to make sure that everything in these tables were now something that specifically had PPE and had to be you know, addressed as far as our clash is concerned. Also in the past, the HRC could be downgraded based on perceived risk. This is no longer a lot. The PPE categories now split into two different tables. In the first table, you have to determine uh, if a hazard exists, and that second table then identifies the actual category of what's there. Looking at those tables and still talking about the HRC, the next major change that took place was they eliminated that HRC zero. Um, this was removed because the committee felt that the table should only show requirements where our flash clothing uh, was actually required. At zero, at the old HRC zero, worker, the workers are technically outside the ArcFlash boundary. Uh, what's important to realize there is when you're talking about that ArcFlash boundary, it's the distance at which you could be exposed to 1.2 calories per centimeter squared. So when you're outside the ArcFlash boundary, there still is a risk there. And at that distance, you still need to be wearing the appropriate PPE to protect yourself from getting uh, burns. So even though HRC zero was removed from the tables, it's still important to understand that there still is a category zero. You know, if you're still working, if you're working on something that's energized, if it's less than 1.2 calories per centimeter squared, you still have to be wearing the appropriate PPE to make sure that you're protected. Looking at the next change, it's similar to the, the dropping out the HRC zero. They got rid of the prohibited approach boundary. Uh, there used to be three approach boundaries, limited, restricted, and prohibited. Limited and restricted both trigger actions. As you cross those boundaries, the code said that there were certain things you had to do. When you cross the prohibited approach boundary, uh, it didn't change anything. Prohibited and restricted were essentially the same. So because of that, there was confusion regarding prohibited approach, and the authors of the code decided to drop that out. Now, when you look at labels, if you have done work in the past and had labels done, uh, created and calculated, put on your equipment, you might see HRC zero show up often, or you, you're going to definitely see the prohibited approach boundary listed. That's one key to definitely know that those labels that you had were prior to put on there prior to 2015. 
looking at the next change, uh, there was there's more uh, they put more of an emphasis on qualified persons. In the past, it was just talking about making sure that they had the training and making sure that they had the experience. But now in the code, there's really a lot more emphasis placed on the fact that these employees actually are able to demonstrate the skills that are required. Um, this gets into watching your employees, auditing them, and making sure that they perform the task properly. The last major change that was in there is about updated labor requirements. That's something we're going to talk a little bit more on here in the slide coming up. Before getting into the actual labels, it's important to have a discussion about what actually needs to be labeled. NFPA 70E and National Electric Code both use uh, very vague verbiage when they talk about what equipment needs to be labeled. They say they actually use the verbiage such as, you know, equipment such as switchboards, panel boards, industrial control panels, meter socket centers, MCCs should have these warning labels. That vague verbiage leaves some room for interpretation. It also leaves some stuff off. When you talk about what needs to be labeled, the key really there is to look at anything over 50 volts that has the potential to be examined, adjusted, serviced, or maintained while energized. Think about disconnect switches. Uh, think about industrial facilities that have overhead bus cuts. Bus plugs and disconnect switches are both very common pieces of equipment, 40 volt three-phase or potentially lower, that are oftentimes opened up, have pieces that are pulled in and out, uh, testing is done there. There's a risk level there. So even though those items are not specifically called out in the A7E and National Electric Code, those are items that do require labels. So once you identify what needs to have the actual labels, it's important to talk about what needs to be on those labels. This is also where some of the changes from 2012 to the 2015 version of the code came into place. Some of the things that were on there previously that are still there, you have to uh, indicate the nominal system voltage. You have to indicate the arc flash boundary. And again, this is the distance at which the incident energy is 1.2 cal per centimeter squared. And then you have to list at least one of the following. Uh, the first there being available incident energy and the corresponding working distance. That working distance is typically 18 inches or the arc flash PPE category. That term or is extremely important. In the past, you could have both of those pieces of information on there. Uh, labels oftentimes in the past would list the available incident energy and the working distance, as well as that HRC category that we mentioned, that zero through four. Those two pieces of information are obtained in two very different ways. The incident energy and working distance are something that's calculated using an engineering analysis, whereas that uh, category, that HRC, or now called the PPE category, is something that's pulled from the tables. So the authors of the code decided that because those are two very different methods of obtaining the information and, and warning people of what the risks are, they wanted uh, one or the other, not both. In the past, you could have both. Now you should have one or the other. Also on the labels, you can have the minimum arc rating of the clothing or a site-specific level of PPE. Once you've got your labels, uh, you know, once you get past talking about the labels, it's very important to make sure that your arc flash risk assessment in general is up to date. Code says that anytime there's a major modification in your facility or anytime there's a renovation, you've got to go back in and, and update your labels. You know, think about it. If you add an addition to your facility, the new equipment that you're bringing in, the new panels, you're not going to have labels. You, at that point in time, you've got to go through the steps to 
uh, put the labels on that equipment. There's also a lot of other minor changes that could take place in your facility over the course of time. Uh, you might move a piece of equipment, something very simple like that. You might change a fuse, you might change a circuit breaker. Those very minor changes can all affect your labels. And because of that, code says that at a minimum of uh, five years, you've got to go back in and review. So anytime a change like that is made, you should be updating your label. But uh, realistically, that might not take place. So at least every five years, you've got to go in and do that. When talking about that assessment, again, we're going to talk about that 50 volts. If you go walk through your facility, you might see some equipment that has labels and some that does not. But at the end of the day, anything over 50 volts that has the potential to be worked on in the energized state should have that arc flash label. You know, we talked about the two different methods a little bit, that uh, category table method versus the engineering analysis. Uh, provisions in the code make it clear that the intent of the 70E committee is to encourage the use of engineering analysis over that table method. But the code does allow the use of tables so long as the system parameters and the tasks meet the table requirements. Um, to kind of make that more clear, the tables themselves have a certain set of criteria that has to be met. There's an incident, or there's a, um, arc, excuse me, there's a short circuit rating on those tables, and there's also a speed of, of the overcurrent circuit protection. If the specific task you're doing is not listed on that table, or you do not know the available fault current or that short circuit current, you can't use those tables. Uh, if you do not know that data, you have to have an engineering analysis. So a lot of people will go ahead and try to use those table methods, but there's still information that you have to get prior to being able to use that table method. It's also important to understand from the risk assessment uh, point of view that the owner of the electrical equipment is responsible for label accuracy. 2015-70E says that the labels need to be updated, as I said, anytime um, something has changed. So if those labels are inaccurate, the standard clearly indicates that the owner of the electrical equipment is responsible for documentation, installation, and maintenance of, of those labels. Very important to realize that uh, the owner is the one responsible. Moving on from the assessment and from the labeling, the other half of the puzzle is training. You can go through the steps to do the assessment and have all this great information and labels put on your panels, but if your employees aren't trained properly and understand what the information on those labels are, then that information really does no good. As far as our class training is concerned, a training must occur at a minimum of every three years. Code also states that it must be documented and verified and inspected at least annually. From a documentation standpoint, you've got to have the content uh, the training, so the actual slides or whatever was used has to be on record, and the names of the people that took the training as well as the dates that the training occurred. And again, going back to the changes, participants must be uh, able to demonstrate that they have knowledge. Be considered a qualified person, it's not you know, sufficient just to obtain the skills, they have to show the knowledge and show the ability to do the tasks that they're required to do as part of their jobs. This goes back to the previous point about um, you know, verifying and inspecting the training annually. The employer must go out and audit and watch his employees do the tasks and make sure that they're doing things the way that need to be done. So when should I conduct retraining? Just said three years, right? Well, three years might not cut it. Um, there's oftentimes tasks that are done that you know, they occur very infrequently, something that might be done on an annual basis. If there's tasks that are done very infrequently like that, then you're supposed to get training prior to doing that test each and every time. Also, when you go back and you start talking about that audit that we just mentioned on the previous slide, 
if uh, as as the supervisor or the employer, you go out and you watch your employees do something and you see that they're not performing the task the way they should, then they need to have retraining. Also, as we all know, technology changes, uh, procedures change, you might go and change your electrical safety program. If, if something like that happens, you bring new equipment in, your employees should have retraining. So what should I include in the training? You know, this is the last slide we're going to go over. Not everything listed on here is, you know, this doesn't cover everything that needs to be in there, but this goes over some of the highlights that should be included in the training. Very important to understand the specific hazards associated with electrical energy. Uh, your employees must be able to identify the electrical hazards and, and realize, you know, what injuries could they possibly get. Um, understanding the hazards and understanding the injuries that they could get gives them uh, respect for what they're working on. It's, it's live electricity. There is a very good chance that something could go wrong, and having that respect helps people be cautious. Training should also include special precautionary techniques and safety-related work practices. You know, a lot of this goes back to what Scott talked about with lockout tagout. You've got to understand how to use lockout tagout. Lockout tagout goes well beyond electrical, but it's very important from the ArcLash perspective that that uh, lockout tagout from electrical is understood. This is also talking about PPE. You know, what PPE do you need to use and how do you, how do you effectively use that PPE? Employees should also be trained in emergency response and ADD use. Code says that this stuff, you know, training should be done three years. The emergency response, that should be done annually. And this is also getting into contact release. Someone comes into contact with a lot of electricity, the rest of your employees need to understand how to safely get them off of there. Moving on, skills and techniques to distinguish energized parts and determine nominal voltage. This again ties into the lockout tagout. How do you use the test equipment? How do you know what those nominal voltage are? I've come across a lot of people that, you know, they say, oh, it's brown, orange, yellow, it's 40 volt. That's normally true. That's the industry standard. But in some cases, I've been in many facilities where they don't use brown, orange, yellow specifically for 480. They might use it for 208. And, uh, you know, if you, you've got to make sure that everyone understands how to tell what they're looking at as far as what voltage is. Approach distances, that's very important. Approach distances, we're talking about that arc flash boundary and the limit and restricted approach. You know, this is information that's going to be on those labels. The training has to include the information that's on those labels and make sure your employees understand what that is and how to work safely using the, that information to keep themselves safe as well as others. And finally, you know, it falls down to that decision-making process and the ability to perform their tasks. Uh, training can be, you know, should and can be customized to the, the actual tasks that are done at your facility. Make sure that, you know, incorporates your specific electrical safety program, energized work permit, and things like that to make sure that your guys, uh, you know, know how to work on energized equipment. All right, with that, I'm going to hand it over to Tom, and he's going to talk about Haskell. All right, thanks, Josh. Nice work. Um, today is a big day for hazard communication, and those of you that are close to the standard and have been following it know exactly what I mean. Um, the hazard communication standard deals primarily with chemical safety in the workplace. Originally, this standard was issued in 1983, and this standard became what we all know as kind of the right-to-know standard. As many of you guys know, the basic goal of the standard is to ensure uh, employers and employees know about the chemical hazards in the workplace and how to protect themselves. So what I'm going to cover over the next 12 to 15 minutes is the three things that we should be doing now based on this critical date. So let me fast forward to 1992. That's actually the genesis of the GHS portion of the standard. And 
Um, there was a United Nations Conference on Environment and Development. Uh, that was a group that was uh, put together um, to look at these issues. And back in 1992, UNICED issued a mandate calling for the development of a globally harmonized chemical classification labeling system. Really, there were four entities that participated, the U.S., Canada, the European Union, um, as well as um, the UN, because they did a lot of work on the transport of dangerous goods. So now fast forward 20 years, and OSHA issues its sweeping HAZCOM regulation in 2012 to include GHS. This was patterned after the UN GHS Revision 3 recommendations, and the biggest changes include chemical classifications, um, new labeling, and standardized SDS sheets. Today there's about 67 countries that have implemented or are in the process of implementing GHS. So today is a big day for GHS. There were three previous milestones to hit since 2012, with today being the fourth and final milestone. Uh, my discussions with uh, industry representatives indicates that while compliance deadline is today, many companies still have a lot of work to do in terms of complying with the spirit and the intent of the regulation. Because the standard affects so many industries, right, and over about 950,000 chemicals in the U.S., there are many nuances that are still being worked out. Indeed, OSHA, if you go to their site, um, they've issued approximately 15 letters of interpretation since 2012, since this latest update was published. A lot of those are on clarification on labeling requirements, classification requirements, how to handle mixtures, um, and a lot of various implementation questions. So today I thought I'd concentrate on three things that we should be doing now if we haven't already completed them. So the to-do list for today includes training, refresh the GHS training because the original requirement was long ago, label your secondary containers, and make sure that your written plan is updated, verified, and stress test. Because the training deadline was about two and a half years ago, or December 2013, OSHA placed a greater emphasis on employee understanding. So now is the best time to refresh that training. Remember, we went from kind of a right-to-know standard, which really meant the right to access information. We had to have SDS sheets available or MSDS sheets available for our employees to review. They had to be out in kind of a public area where they could easily access it. Now, um, when you look at the OSHA standard, the HAZCOM standard today, it's really all about the right to understand, right? It's, it requires more of an emphasis on employee understanding the chemical and the hazards that they're dealing with and the precautions that they need to take while working with that chemical. While there is no requirement for annual training uh, like there is in, with what Josh mentioned with ArcFlash or what Scott mentioned with Lockout, um, the standard does require us to conduct initial training and then we have to train any new employees that are hired or when any, when any new hazardous chemicals are introduced into our workplace. But because the labels have changed significantly, we've got new pictograms to memorize, the enforcement standards have changed, now is a good time to refresh that training. Recall it's no longer good enough for an employee to simply refer a compliance officer to an SDS sheet. Um, they need to know the hazards and the precautions required. The training cannot be done in a cursory fashion. In fact, there's a great document that you guys, if you get a chance to download from the OSHA.gov website. It's their guidance document for inspections on the HAZCOM regulation. And in that document it says the training provisions of the hazard communications 
system are not satisfied solely by giving employees the data sheets to read. An employer's training program is to be a forum for explaining to employees not only the hazards of the chemicals in their work area, but also how to use the information generated in the hazard communication program. The compliance officer must interview employees to determine if they have an adequate understanding of workplace chemical hazards. And that's on the OSHA.gov website. It basically is a guidance document for all of the compliance officers, what they're going to be looking for, um, what areas they're going to be looking at, and questions they're, you know, they're going to be asking. Um, if we employ temporary employees, the training burden falls on both us as a manufacturer as well as a staffing agency. The staffing agency has a responsibility for general HAZCOM training um, and us as a host employer for identifying and communicating the specific hazards, worksite hazards. In fact, the host employer really carries the primary responsibility since we're best suited um, to communicate those specific worksite hazards. It's a best practice to use posters, place posters, signs, labels in areas where employees routinely interact with the chemicals. Posters and signs can remind employees what those pictograms mean. Also, things like simple wallet card reminders can serve to reinforce knowledge. These, are, these not only serve to help inform our employees, but they also act to visually reinforce and communicate your training efforts should you have a compliance officer walk through for your facility. Also, make sure your safety data sheets are readily accessible by all employees, as well as your written HAZCOM plan. Now, here's where there's a fair amount of confusion that lies, and I'll try to clear that up. When it comes to labeling, OSHA considers two types of HAZCOM labels for GHS. On the left, OSHA considers shipped labels as the primary container labels. That is, the label on the chemical manufacturer puts on the shippable container whether it's a big container, you know, a 55-gallon drum, or if it's a small vial, a medical test tube, for example. Um, that's the shipped label. And the primary shipped container must have all six label elements on it, include, including those red diamond pictograms. If we, as a user of that chemical, for example, if we open that drum, pour that chemical into, say, five 10-gallon containers for use in our manufacturing operations, that's called a secondary container, and OSHA refers to that as a workplace label. Do we have to label that secondary container? Yes. Um, OSHA says yes. As long as that container stays within our workplace, we can use what's called a workplace label. And on that label, we've got more latitude regarding what's required. OSHA says we can either match the primary label, which really is a best practice, or we can use words, pictures, symbols, or in combination with other information conveys all the physical and health hazards of the chemical. So the question that I know you're thinking about is, does that mean we can maintain our old right to know and NFPA labels? Well, the answer to that is maybe. And here's the hitch. The old NFPA 704 standard and label did not recognize long-term chronic health hazards like carcinogens, things that are cancer-causing or hazards that cause birth defects in the unborn child, like mutagens or tetragens. And under HAZCOM GHS, now it's our responsibility to communicate all the physical and health hazards of that chemical. Therefore, if that particular chemical now has an SDS sheet that says may cause cancer, and we want to use an NFPA label, we must also indicate on that label that the chemical can cause cancer by in indicating that on the label. So the answer is yes, it's a qualified yes if you indicate all of the physical and health hazards that GHS is now recognizing. 
And provided we do that and we train our employees on how to read and interpret la that label, then yes, we can use it. In fact, OSHA really provides us with plenty of latitude. Um, that label can be of our own design as long as we train employees on how to read that label and it communicates all the physical and health hazards of the chemical we're working with. The other exception is let's say that that chemical is in a secondary container. I poured it in that secondary container and it's completely used up within my work shift and that chemical is totally under my control. Um, there, I don't need to actually put a label on it. So if it's a 55-gallon drum of petroleum, I'm taking it, putting it in a 10-gallon container, and then I'm dumping that into a piece of equipment, I don't need to label that 10-gallon container, provided that I use it up completely within my work shift and it's always under my control. However, as I mentioned before, the best practice is to really replicate the primary or shipped label for your workplace label. It eliminates potential confusion, eliminates the need to have to train on two different label systems, makes life easier all around. Um, and don't forget, if we want to put NFPA information on that um, workplace label, we can certainly do that, or even on the primary container label. We can add supplementary information as long as it doesn't conflict with the GHS information. All right, so now that we've retrained, we're talking about labels, it's time to make sure your secondary containers are labeled. You basically have two options when labeling secondary containers. One is to go to your favorite label supplier, and I can certainly provide a recommendation for anyone who's interested or order those labels already pre-printed with the chemical information provided uh, and or I should say and order those labels with all the information provided. Generally all of that information for a pre-printed label that we need to create comes from an SDS sheet. So at Brady for example we have a form on the website that can be filled out online and we'll create the labels for you. Simply check with your local distributor um, and you should be good to go. This is typically good if our label needs are not that extensive. We can wait a couple of days for labels to arrive or we have a really harsh or tough environment requiring some unique, you know, protected type labels. The other option is to print your own labels. Um, the option, this is ideal if we want to print, let's say, from several hundred to thousands of labels per year or we simply can't afford to wait a few days for shipping. Plus, when we purchase a printing system to print the labels, we can also print a whole ton of other types of labels, things like bin labels, shelf labels, safety danger warning labels, lean 5S labels, machine labels, even small signs. So one of the criteria that you might be asking yourself is how do I know whether I really want to buy a printer or if I should just get pre-printed labels? Well, a method to kind of help decide which approach is best is to estimate your overall volume of labels that you need annually, right? Include the GHS labels, include the safety labels. What this graphic on the screen shows, it, it kind of compares the cost of a 4-inch by 6-inch vinyl label. It shows the pros and cons of two options under different volume scenarios. On the left side, you can see with relatively low volumes, let's say you're in an area of maybe you know, 50 to 100 to 500 labels a year, the label cost is going to be around $1.50 to $3 a label, pre-printed on average. Um, oftentimes with that low volume of labels, it's difficult to justify a, a print system. The middle area is where the label cost is minimized when purchasing a printer. Um, that is the label stock, the printer, and any applicable software. Here our label cost is about $75 to $1.50 per label. And then on the, uh, the third side is where you're going to do tens of thousands of labels, especially, let's say, with the same text. Here the cost is minimized by ordering pre-printed labels because they can be run on large flexographic equipment internally. Um, equipment that a uh, supplier like Brady has, and we produce thousands of those labels per hour, and it's really an economical price, 30 to 75 cents a label. 
So just know that there's kind of a sweet spot for where printing systems come in, and it's kind of in that mid-range of, of label volume. Um, when you look at a printing system for your secondary containers, the cost will vary based on the features you desire. Larger printers will create larger labels. Um, the small printers may have a limited size label, like let's say uh, up to a four inch size. Um, the larger printers may have multi-colors, the smaller printers may only print one color, so just be aware of that. In general, the price of these benchtop style printers will vary from around $1,300 to up to maybe $4,000. The more sophisticated printers will recognize the label stock and minimize any label waste, as well as use um, like a heat transfer or thermal heat technology to kind of burn the ink into the label. This kind of provides for a non-smearing, more durable label that are usually UV protected and suitable for both indoor and outdoor use. Because there's a fair amount of technology that goes into printers like this, beware of companies that offer printers for free or, or printers for free with the purchase of tape. They tend to drive cost and quality out of the printer while making it up on the profit margins of their labels. So look for companies that have reasonable pricing in both the printer as well as the consumable. All right, update and stress test your written plan. Now is the time to ensure that your written plan is updated and effective. Make sure the plan is accessible to your employees. Have both hard copy as well as electronic copies available. And make sure that they address the key OSHA points, including your chemical inventory, how to handle like non-routine tasks, um, how to train, when to train your employees, and a record of training those employees, both permanent employees as well as any temporary employees. Identify who's responsible for managing your labels and safety data sheet, and maintain that training log showing who was trained, the method of training, and the date that the training was completed. Um, and then finally, um, you know, stress test it. Walk around, ask your employees about their chemicals, the hazards, the precautions to take. Look for evidence of GHS-style labels. Look for evidence that training has been completed. Um, look where your chemicals are properly stored and are they in um, appropriately marked containers? Are there posters and things available? Um, ask your employees how to handle that particular chemical. We should ask ourselves kind of these critical questions. Are all of our chemicals inventoried and identified? Have we added any new chemicals? Do our employees have access to the plan and SDS sheets? Is there a standard briefing for contractors who come into our facility talking about HAZCOM? Is there a HAZCOM briefing for them? And is HAZCOM training? part of our company's onboarding process for new employees. So based on these answers and responses, determine if there are any additional gaps to close. Don't look at the HAZCOM plan as like a one and done activity. Treat it like any other critical operating task that needs periodic review and improvement. We often use Kaizans, Lean, continuous improvement methods to improve our production and operations area. We can certainly take the same mindset for our safety programs and policies. It's a good step in moving our companies toward a kind of a culture of safety with driving safety as an ingrained behavior equal to production and operational efficiency. So that was a quick 15-minute overview on the HASCOM update. Um, thanks very much for listening. I think it looks like we have a few minutes for some questions. So Tom, I'll turn it back to you for any questions we have. Great, thank you so much, and, and great job to everyone. Thank you for that insightful presentation. Um, before we get started with the Q&A, I just want to remind everybody about the evaluation survey that we're going to ask you to complete. Uh, the survey should be appearing on your screen. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcasts. Um, and now with that said, we're going to go ahead and get to a few questions, and we will go over about five minutes just so everyone knows, and any questions that we don't get to will be forwarded on to today's speakers.
So I'll get started with uh, a lockout tagout related question. Is lockout tagout only for electrical on machines? Yeah, the uh, answer to that is um, absolutely not. I mean, electrical is a, a main component, but it's any hazardous energy source. So uh, pneumatic, gravity, hydraulic, so anything that has potential um, upon release to uh, endanger, you know, whoever's working on that, that piece of equipment. So it includes all types of hazardous energy, not just electrical. Good question. Scott, I'll stay on that subject. Uh, as This is another question. As a best practice, should the photos be taken in the locked out state? <laughs> that, very interesting. Now, as a best practice, that would be that would be fantastic. So you actually have the, the right devices and locks and tags and everything on it uh, with it in a de-energized state. Um, but um, sometimes it, uh, it's very difficult because you cannot bring the, those pieces of equipment down, you know, for, for every picture um, just based on, you know, what's going on in production or whatnot. So is it, would it be a best practice? And if you can do it, should you? Um, I would say yes, um, but is it required? No. And then Scott, do you have a template for the lockout tagout sheet? Um, we we do have you know a, a lot of different uh, templates. Brady actually um, goes out to many many different client sites and develop develop these. We have a full team that goes out and uh, actually develops the equipment specific procedures. So we do have um, different templates that we use. And then Josh, we have uh, some questions related to Arc Flash as well. Uh, one question that came in said, is it required to have ArcFlash assessment for remote disconnects and have them labeled with ArcFlash labels? That's a great, great question. Uh, and the answer to that is yes, it, it really is. Um, one, one common misconception that people often say is, you know, if I have my panel labeled or if I have a disconnect label, if I have another disconnect downstream somewhere, you know, that shouldn't need a label, right? If, if the one over here is already a Category 1 or, you know, Category 0, the one downstream should be zero or one as well. But the, the issue there is uh, as the available fault current travels across that mm -hmm. distance to that downstream disconnect, uh, the available fault current drops. And that conversely, you know, might make it so the overcurrent protective device doesn't operate as quickly, which actually would increase the incident energy. So anything really over that 50 volts that has the potential to be work on, worked on while energized should have that label of test. And, you know, furthermore, even if the arc flash uh, hazard, the incident energy hazard is low, there still is that shock hazard. So even if it might be, you know, by the old HRC zero, less than 1.2 cal, uh, there still could be a 40 volt shock hazard. So the label does address the shock as well as the arc flash. And then Josh, I'll send one more question your way. If, uh, if an employer does not have any employees that work on electrical systems or equipment, does an arc flash assessment have to be completed? Uh, yes, it, it does. It does still, because even if they don't have employees that work on that equipment themselves, uh, they still have outside contractors come in most likely to do some of that work. And even though the outside contractor isn't an, isn't an employee, uh, the employer or the owner of that building is still responsible for anyone that comes in and works on that system. Great. Thank you. And then, Tom, we have some questions for you as well. I know uh, you provided a, a ton of great information. Uh, one question uh, respondent wants to know how he can find the HASCOM OSHA guidance training documentation uh, that you were discussing about on OSHA's website. Do you do you know how how he could go find that information? 
Oh, sure. Um, an easy way to get to it is to type into the URL osha.gov and then backslash hascom, um, and that will bring them to OSHA's um, hazard communication page. There's a bunch of tabs on that page, and then down the right side of the margin, they list um, if they publish a document related to the HAZCOM standard, like an interpretation document or anything um, offering clarification, it's usually in that highlight section on the right. And the one that I was referencing is called HCS 2012 Inspection Procedures for the HAZCOM Standard 2012. Um, and that's a great document. It's, I want to say, you know, how OSHA standard documents go, they tend to be rather lengthy. I want to guess this was like about 50 or 60 pages, but it was broken up into the various sections of the HAZCOM standard. So training was one, labeling was another, uh, chemical classifications was a third. Um, and they really just talk about top line things that their inspectors should go in and look at. Um, and it's great information for companies like us because we're obviously a manufacturer of labels and signs and things like that. So we need that document as well to know what, uh, what inspectors are going to be looking for when they come through our facility. So it is a good document to, to reference for sure. And it's on the OSHA.gov website backslash HAZCOM and look for it in the right-hand margin. Thanks, Tom. And we got one more question for you. Um, it's, it's in regard to chemicals in, in the inventory and which ones are required to have the, GS, the GHS label. Are those the chemicals that are in inventory before today or the ones before December of 2015? Oh, that's a good question. Um, if you're a, a manufacturer, let's say, and you've had chemicals in inventory you know, before today, or let's say four years ago you purchased a chemical, way before even the, the GHS standard may have um, come out, um, do you have to relabel those chemicals? And the answer is no, you do not have to relabel those chemicals. It's really a requirement for the chemical manufacturers. So if we get a chemical, let's say, from DuPont or Exxon, um, they have the responsibility for making sure their primary um, containers are labeled correctly. And it started, um, their requirement actually dates back to June 1 of 2015. So any chemicals supplied um, by a manufacturer after June 1, 2015 should come with the new GHS label and should come with a new SDS sheet. But as users of those chemicals like ourselves, we do not have to go back and, and relabel those, um, those uh, containers. Now the question becomes, if you transfer that chemical to a secondary container, what OSHA calls a workplace container, um, then you will have to put a label on that secondary container that's appropriate to GHS. But um, currently, right now, um, if it's a primary container, the chemical manufacturer has the burden of changing out those labels on those containers for you. Thanks for or that not, I shouldn't say them out, but uh, supplying the, on the next shipment, supplying the chemical with the correct GHS label on it. Great. Well, I think, I think that should wrap it up. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. And I'm sorry we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speakers. I know we got a lot of really great feedback, and um, all of those questions will be sent along. And once again, I hope that you can take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen and send us your feedback. That will help us going forward. And with that, it ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I would like to thank Scott, Josh, Tom, Brady Safety, and all of you who listened in, thank you so much, and have a great day.